many aspects of American society. Even now in 2024, we're still too close to know all the ramifications of this terrible virus. Industries like travel and entertainment were changed drastically. And while we've seen some improvements, we don't know what the long-lasting economic effects will be. The same is true for education. What was already a source of contention in the pre-pandemic years became the centerpiece for the culture wars. Like many aspects of society, COVID sharpened and heightened strains that were present before and took them to levels where they could no longer be ignored. Before we go forward, I want to put my cards on the table. I last graduated from Institute of Higher Learning when I received my master's degree 10 years ago. I do not have kids in the K-12 system, and most of my knowledge will be what I have read, seen, and heard from media. If your lived experience contradicts what I say in this essay, please note that I'm not trying to invalidate those experiences in any way, shape, or form. There are roughly 100,000 schools in the country, so it would be irresponsible and wrong to make sweeping proclamations about K-12 education as a whole. I will point out trends and cite sources, but it does not mean what is being discussed is true for every single school in the country. With that out of the way, let's examine the past, present, and likely future of K-12 education. While higher education has itself seen turmoil since 2020, the end of affirmative action, the debate over what constitutes free speech for what is considered anti-Semitic, a questioning of the value of a college degree in the 21st century, my focus for this essay will be on K-12 education. I will likely cover higher ed in a future show. Let's start with where we were, public education from 2002 to 2020. It's impossible to really talk about K-12 education in the United States without talking about No Child Left Behind. Per understood.org, the No Child Left Behind Act, the NCLB, was a federal law in the United States that was signed into law by President George W. Bush in 2002. The law aimed to provide more education and opportunities for students, especially those who are disadvantaged. It focused on four key groups, students in poverty, students of color, students receiving special education services, and those who spoke and understood limited or no English. Unlike previous versions of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, the ESEA, NCLB held schools accountable for how schools learn and achieve. It did this through annual testing, reporting, improvement targets, and penalties for schools. These changes made NCLB controversial, but they also forced schools to focus on disadvantaged kids. NCLB was replaced by the Every Student Succeeds Act, the ESSA, in 2015, which tried to address some of the criticisms of the law. The bill passed with broad, bipartisan support, though the criticism mentioned above began almost immediately. Two reasons NCLB was deemed a failure, per the daily podcast episode America's Education Problem. It was 50 different tests. And so Alabama might have a lot easier of a test than Massachusetts, and so it becomes really hard to compare how kids are doing across the states. And suddenly it seems like this isn't actually that helpful of a national tool if the states are basically allowed to set their own yardstick. Each of these governors has an incentive to make themselves look good. And the other big reason why it failed was just the tests were not that high quality, and the teachers were teaching to the test because schools could be declared failing if students were not moving forward on these exams and not scoring well enough. There's also the change in school culture caused by the law that angered many. Per Linda Perlstein's excellent book, Tested, One American School Struggles to Make the Grade, the aspect of No Child Left Behind that changed the climate of schools more than any other was the requirements that states phase in annual testing for students in grades 3 through 8, and once in high school for reading and math. Schools that do particularly well are rewarded with money. 
At those that miss the pass rate target two years in a row, overall or for any subgroup of students, children may transfer to a higher scoring school selected by the district. The law, while good intention, had some unintended consequences. As Perlstein notes, more fundamental questions about where the accountability movement is taking our schools, questions about the limits of data and the real impact of schooling have gone undiscussed. A truly honest airing would address how a focus on the percent of students proficient rather than on actual scores can mask inadequacies, that there is no incentive to pay attention to children certain either to pass or to fail. Only the kids on the bubble make the difference. There's no incentive to teach anything you know won't be on the test. An honest airing would acknowledge how little the test tells us about students, and and it would address the failure of accountability rules to do anything about some of the root causes of poor performances in schools. Lack of preschool, lack of medical care, poor parent education, impoverished communities. To give the program some credit, there were some, albeit at small, bright spots to the program, per a Forbes article from 2022. No Child Left Behind was billed as a tool for pushing schools to focus more energy on making sure low-performing students were mastering the basics. There was some evidence this happened. On the National Assessment of Education Practice, also known as the Nation's Report Card, there was a notable achievement bump right around the passage of NCLB, and the following half-decade showed some steady progress. The gains weren't immense, but they were real, and they were disproportionately racked up by the overlooked students that NCLB was intended to help. In the wake of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008, raised to the top, Barack Obama's signature education law was passed. Per a 2010 article by Judith Lohman, assistant director at the Connecticut General Assembly, the Race to the Top RTTT program and the No Child Left Behind NCLB Act deal with many of the same issues and have many of the same goals, but their approaches are different. One provides incentives for schools to change, the other mandates it. The RTTT, enacted as part of the Federal American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, the ARRA, is a competitive grant program that seeks to give states monetary incentives to reform their education systems in certain ways. The NCLB law, enacted in 2001, mandated various changes in state and local education systems as a condition of receiving Title I funds. Title I is the largest federal education grant to states and local school districts. It pays for educational programs for disadvantaged children and is distributed according to a federal formula. State and local school districts that receive RTTT grants will receive additional federal funding. The NCLB requires states to make reforms in order to continue receiving federal funds they are already getting. But the two programs address many of the same issues. The NCLB provides a foundation for RTTT, but because RTTT is voluntary, it can encourage more sophisticated ways of measuring student, teacher, and school performance. It appears that the RTTT competition will, in turn, change the NCLB because its requirements are likely to be incorporated into a new version of that law when it is reauthorized by Congress. Meanwhile, the NCLB and RTTT exist side-by-side with both laws currently in effect. Per the daily episode referenced earlier, he, Obama, comes up with his own policies that he hopes are going to address the flaws of No Child Left Behind, while sort of better succeeding in the original goal. He is going to have better tests, basically, and is going to hold schools and teachers accountable to more high-quality standards, and they're going to be shared across the country instead of 50 states, the Common Core State Standards, which would be a national effort to write curriculum standards in reading and math that all 50 states could hopefully share. And Obama takes a look at this, and he loves the idea. The Obama administration did give money through a program called Race to the Top to the states that adopted the Common Core. The way it works is states were competing for about $4 billion in federal funding. It was the recession, the states were broke. They were desperate for cash, and they would have done pretty much anything that was asked of them. And Obama gave them a lot of priorities that he wanted them to fulfill to get this money, and one of them was to adopt rigorous shared standards. 
He did not specifically say the Common Core, but that's what it was because the effort was already underway and all across state houses across the country, people knew about this. Despite the good intentions of both programs, the end results were disappointing. Again, from the Daily, ever since George W. Bush was elected and No Child Left Behind, through President Obama and Race to the Top and Common Core and effort after effort to try to get American kids to do better on these types of international exams, American performance has not changed. It's stagnant. This is where we were pre-COVID. American elementary education achievement had for nearly two decades, despite the additions of billions of dollars in federal and private funds, remained in the same place. Do you enjoy reading but can't find book reviewers you connect with? Do you find booktubers more concerned with showing off their book hauls than like, you know, reading to be as useful as solar powered flashlights? You may enjoy another book review. It's a spoiler free book review channel where I review everything from contemporary literature to classics, genre fiction such as sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, as well as a large dose of nonfiction. If you loved reading as a kid but fell out of the habit and are looking to jump back in, or if you never left in the first place, you'll find something to enjoy. That's another book review on YouTube.com. Where we are. COVID hits the country in early 2020. It did not hit evenly, however. Learning loss differed widely by state and economic status, per the website The 74. COVID-19's cataclysmic impact on K-12 education coming on the heels of a decade of stagnation in schools has yielded a lost generation of growth for adolescents, new federal data reveals. Wednesday's publication of scores from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the NAEP, America's most prominent benchmark of learning, typically referred to as the nation's report card, shows the average 13-year-old's understanding of math plummeted back to levels last seen in the 1990s. Struggling readers scored lower than they did in 1971 when the test was first administered. Gaps in performance between children of different backgrounds, already huge during the Bush and Obama presidencies, have stretched to still greater magnitudes. From a Brookings Institute article entitled, The Pandemic Has Had Devastating Impacts on Learning, What Will Take to Help Students Catch Up? Average Fall 2021 Math Test Scores in Grades 3-8 through were 0.20 to 0.27 standard deviations lower relative to same grade peers in fall of 2019, while reading test scores were 0.09 to 0.18 standard deviations lower. This is a sizable drop. For context, the math drops are significantly larger than estimated impacts from other large-scale school disruptions such as after Hurricane Katrina. Math scores dropped 0.17 standard deviations in one year for New Orleans evacuees. Even more concerning test score gaps between students in low poverty and high poverty elementary schools grew by approximately 20% in math, corresponding to 0.20 standard deviations and 15% in reading, 0.13 standard deviations, primarily during the 2020 to 2021 school year. Further achievement tended to drop more between fall 2020 and 2021 than between fall 2019 and 2020, both overall and differentially by school poverty indicating that disruptions to learning have continued to negatively impact students well past the initial hits following the spring 2020 school closures. From a 2023 Center for Education Policy Research article from Harvard University entitled New Research Finds That Pandemic Learning Loss Impacted Whole Communities Regardless of Student, Race, or Income, the average U.S. public school student in grades 3 through 8 lost the equivalent of a half year of learning in math and a quarter of a year in reading. The learning loss is real, and it begs the obvious question, what to do now? where we're going. 
In the short term, learning loss will be front and center. Writing in a 2023 article from The Hill, Juan Cisneros outlined a variety of strategies that are being looked at to bring students up to a relatively normal baseline, from extending the school year to focusing on the ninth grade as a fire break. Quoting Tom Kane, When they're fighting a fire, firefighters don't try to put out every square inch of a fire. Instead, what firefighters do is they create a fire break where they say, we're not going to allow the fire to spread beyond this point. We should think of ninth grade as a fire break, Kane explained. Anybody who fails to reach proficiency on the state assessment in eighth grade, for instance, suppose that the state would provide resources for a district to provide an extra period of math to those students or maybe a math tutor. While this is happening, we're also seeing the purpose and effectiveness of K-12 education question in a way that I've never seen before. As I briefly mentioned in my episode on mandatory national service, I believe we have moved to a society that is more preoccupied with the rights and freedoms of the individual than we have been in the past. Some of this is understandable due to globalization and the loss of good-paying jobs that require only a high school diploma over the last 40 years. There are a lot fewer factories on the edge of town these days, and for white-collar workers, you may be competing with someone who lives 8,500 miles away from you as much as with someone living eight. But there's also a feeling that institutions are not performing at their tasks, And in this void, individualism must take up the slack. This change can also be seen with the rise of the internet and the ability for micromedia to replace mass media. The distribution of content filtered by algorithms allows for the personalization of experiences to a level never before seen in human history. While there are many amazing things about this, it also sets an expectation that non-digital life should be tailored to us as individuals as well. What does this mean for education specifically? It means that the old one-size-fits-all sage-on-the-stage model that has existed since at least the time of Socrates will likely fade as it pertains to K-12 education. What will replace it is a question that has not been answered yet. One possible model is outlined in John Marrow's book, Addicted to Reform. While the book has many assumptions I feel are flawed, that building citizenship should be the primary goal of education and that cyberbullying can be curbed or eliminated simply by transforming curriculum being but two, The idea of using technology to gain a more holistic view of a child's interests and scholastic strengths and weaknesses should be a goal if we are to meet children at the individual level. Merrill also recognizes the value of collaborative learning and project-based learning, grouping children less by age and more by interest. While the book does not provide a hypothetical date in the life for the average student following this model, many ideas in the book are worth further examination. Examining the post-COVID landscape of public education and the increased struggles between schools and parents, Sean Slade, in his book Questioning Education, writes, All these debates, arguments, and shout-fests are meaningless, or at best, dysfunctional, unless we first determine why we have education. He goes on to advocate for changing the focus on education by shifting the primary question that schools answer now from what, as in what children learn, to why. Why is what is being taught useful and valuable to their growth? He believes that this will reverse many of the trends brought on by No Child Left Behind, which he describes as well-intentioned but ultimately flawed, Greater student disengagement, teacher demoralization, and the disintegration of public trust in education are all things that he has attributed to that policy. He goes on to tie this change with the need for a more personalized environment. We are resituating the student at the center of the learning equation and adjusting our teaching and their learning to suit. There has been a necessary acceptance by many teachers to allow for greater student autonomy, greater choice in voice, greater agency and ownership in decision making. There has been a growing appreciation over the past year to both allow for greater autonomy in learning and curate what is being learned to suit the students as a result of these unforeseen circumstances and new learning environments. COVID-19 and the school year of 2019-2020 will likely go down as a watershed for both our society and education. 
but we will likely not appreciate or recognize these changes for several years to come. It will likely change how we interact, where we live and work, whether we physically move for employment, and it will change the way or ways we learn. In times of great change, it is often valuable to return to first principles, fundamental building blocks upon which greater complexity is built. The most important question about education and the one that is the hardest to answer is, what is its purpose? Slade notes that the primary goal for education is debatable and puts forward a short list. Academic attainment, personal development, citizenship, community, or societal engagement. The list could go on. He does not offer his own opinion about which of these should be the primary goal of education. In the future, given the direction of culture and the increase in the technologies that will allow for personalization, it's likely that personal development and academic attainment will become the primary focus of schools. The widespread belief that learning loss will lead to lowered life potential will also encourage many school districts to refocus on academic achievement to the detriment of other possible goals. The advantages to a personalized, adaptive learning system are clear. A child able to follow their passion and interest will likely go further and farther in that pursuit than someone who is forced to learn a subject because the state compels them to. There is a tension here as well, the obvious one being who determines the validity or truth of what someone is learning. If a student is allowed to more or less follow their own interest in the foundation of knowledge moves from a teacher, a sage on the stage, to the infamously unreliable internet, what happens? Do we grade the child on a curve? Do we reward curiosity but penalize factual inaccuracies? What if a student simply refuses to learn a subject because it does not interest them? If a teacher is unable to convince a student that geometry is important, which has happened in classrooms for decades, in the current system, a student, should they want to graduate, will begrudgingly learn as much about the subject as is required to pass the class, pass the class and never think about geometry again, unless future courses or work requires it. In an academic model where children guide their education, what happens when the child dismisses the importance of a subject? These questions would have to be answered at multiple levels, local, state, and federal. It's easy to see a conflict. A school may value a child's autonomy more than a federal government, which may be more focused on national test scores in certain subjects. What is lost when this happens? The obvious one being what we are currently seeing in a polarized, siloed world, a lack of a shared understanding of what is true. Without a common understanding of basic concepts like truth and consensus, we are, as a society, going to become more, not less, tribalized over time. While the sage on the stage model has its glaring flaws, wide ranges of teacher effectiveness, personal bias, and limitations of curriculum that may not align with student interest, teachers are typically highly educated professionals who, for the most part, want to help children reach their full potential. The internet, even combined with the best technology, will not care about a student as much as a good teacher. The other possible goals of education listed above will also be diminished. For instance, in Mero's book, he puts citizenship as the primary goal of education. Personally, I find it uncomfortable for a student to be graded on things like civics or societal engagement. I think for students who are asocial or socially awkward or different for a number of reasons, there may be legitimate reasons to not want to engage with a community they do not feel a part of. To make their academic lives more difficult for this seems unreasonably cruel. That being said, knowledge of civic life and governmental representation is unquestionably important. And while I find it unlikely that an increase in civics education would translate into a better political process, whatever that actually means, I think downplaying an already weak civics education in the pursuit of greater academic achievement should at least be done with an understanding of the pros and cons of this decision. A focus on academic achievement to the detriment of more communitarian goals will also create clear winners and losers in the academic system. Those who are able to achieve at a young age will likely be able to do so throughout their academic career. Freddie DeBoer, in a Substack article entitled Education Doesn't Work 2.0, has a very powerful passage that I want to quote in full. 
The brute reality is that most kids slot themselves into academic ability bands early in life and stay there throughout schooling. We have a certain natural level of performance, gravity towards it early on, and are likely to remain in that band relative to peers until our education ends. There is some room for wiggle, and in large populations there are always outliers. But in thousands of years of education, humanity has discovered no replicable and reliable means of taking kids from one educational percentile and raising them up into another. Mobility of individual students in quantitative academic metrics relative to their peers over time is far lower than popularly believed. The children identified as the smart kids early in elementary school will, with surprising regularity, maintain that position throughout schooling. Do some kids transcend or fall from their early positions? Sure, but the system as a whole is quite static. Most everybody stays in about the same place relative to peers over academic careers. The consequences of this are immense. As it is this relative position, not learning itself, which is rewarded economically and socially in our society. One can make an argument that new methods, technologies, and focuses in education, some of which have been mentioned above, will lead to a greater ability for students to achieve beyond their baseline competency. However, it's also possible, and probably likely, that the academic changes will be relatively minor due to the relative weakness of the education system to enact great change in a student's trajectory. An academic system where a student uses advanced computer adaptive learning modules to satiate their undying curiosity is a recipe for some students going far beyond the current model. In an era where gifted and talented programs are being routinely questioned and eliminated, this may be a valid way to ensure that top-tier students live up to their full potential. But what about everyone else? In the albeit limited literature I've read, there seems to be an assumption that student apathy is a problem easily overcome. But I'm not so sure. If the goals of No Child Left Behind are seen as valid, if there is a societal responsibility to help those in the middle and the bottom, how do we do this given the drive for individuation? Can it be done? Maybe a stronger mentor network is called for. Building on the idea of take your son or daughter to work day, a student is able to connect what they are doing academically with those who have been economically successful may overcome some of this apathy. This could be accomplished with greater community involvement from organizations like the Rotary or Lions Club. However, this returns us to the unanswerable question, what is school for? I think there is the possibility of creating a more dynamic model, one that combines both the need for personal achievement with the need for socialization and civics education. What would this look like? The standard school year that we've used since the founding of the primary school system, one based around the agrarian calendar, should continue. Parents and teachers have grown accustomed to this system, and changing it wholesale would be extremely disruptive to society. I tend to think that a student-driven model has a lot of upsides, but also needs motivated students in order to fully work. The question of how to do this for those who are unmotivated or do not have the proper tools to best adapt to the system would have to be answered. A split-the-baby solution would be to allow for those students who, have, who are motivated to essentially self-study with a higher student-to-teacher ratio. The remaining teachers would then be used to motivate and guide the students who have difficulties with the self-driven model. The focus during this time should be on academics, with clubs and sports still being an option for students interested in these things. The big difference would be that summers would be used for service learning. This would be a two-month-long project that would be designed at the city-slash-local level. It would have to be age-appropriate, but should focus on understanding how the work impacts the local community and the broader world. Park cleanups, water and air testing, and creating guides to local flora and fauna are all examples of possible projects. This would also be an ideal time for group work and allow for those students who have struggled academically to shine in a more social, team-based environment. This would require additional funding. However, given the fear of learning loss in the United States, it's likely that additional funding will become available in the next few years as the impact from COVID becomes more apparent. The strength of a system where decisions are made at the local and state level is that different states and municipalities can and will experiment with different methods and ideas. 
I think there is a real opportunity here for educators, social scientists, and economists to work together to find best practices that can be implemented nationwide. Thank you for listening to this episode of Elegant Ramblings. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please consider liking and subscribing to the channel on iTunes or YouTube. You'll be able to find show notes there. We'll be back in a couple of weeks where my focus will shift from K-12 education to higher ed. Hope you enjoyed. Bye for now.